This episode is part one of our two-part interview with Julie Whitehead, a sex trafficking survivor and author of Shadowed, How I Became the Sex Trafficked Mother Next Door. In this first part of the interview, Julie shares her experience of growing up in an abusive home, which damaged any sense of boundary she had and created a picture of what relationships with men look like. In marriage, her husband was extremely controlling and abusive, but Julie felt helpless to escape. This episode helps to lay the foundation for the next part of Julie's story, in which she became a sex trafficking victim. She'll share about that in part two of her interview. We're so grateful that Julie was willing to share her story with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Julie, thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. It's always an honor to get to hear any true stories, but especially survivor stories. So thank you for making some time for us, um, for coming here to, to be with us. We are with Julie Whitehead today. She is the author of Shadowed, How I Became the Sex Trafficked Mother Next Door. And for anyone who's maybe a little bit unfamiliar with your story, I would love to just kind of start at um, what was life like growing up for you, you know, just kind of start at the beginning and you know, see what, what was your family like? Kind of how was that experience for you growing up? Wow, that's <laughs> kind of a Pandora's box. I didn't have the best childhood. I mean, I had moments that were good, obviously, because it's always a mixed bag. But um, my dad actually started sexually abusing me when I was around three or four, somewhere in there. And um, that continued clear through until I was... I think I was almost 15 when that stopped. Um, the abuse started kind of slow and then just escalated through the years until it was full-on sexual abuse. And that was really damaging to me as a child, obviously. I probably don't need to explain how that was damaging, but it really destroyed any sense of boundaries that I might have otherwise built mm-hmm. and put up. And I just, I just thought that that was how it was with men. Like I thought, you know, how my dad was with my mom and with me and my brother, I thought that was how all dads were. And so it wasn't like I was comparing it to other people and saying, gosh, I have it so bad. I was just, this was my normal. I knew something wasn't right about it. Just like internally, I knew like this doesn't feel right. Something feels wrong but I couldn't put words to what that would have been. Um, I remember sitting in, oh, I wanna say fifth or sixth grade, I'm not really sure, but they were doing like a, a an assembly about good touch, bad touch. Mm. And these were kind of the early days when people were talking about this. So it was not a really well-versed subject. You know, a lot of people just kind of turned the other cheek to it they don't want to talk about this kind of thing but they did in school that day and they were saying if somebody is touching you in a bad way you need to let an adult know and I remember thinking somebody is touching me in a bad way but it's my dad right like should I that doesn't make any sense who do I go to and if that's my parent like who do I go to right it didn't even occur to me to reach out to any other adult because that's my dad. And, and even if what we were doing was wrong, which I assumed that it was, I didn't want to get him in trouble. Like that was my father. I'm going to protect him naturally as his child. And I loved him. And, um, so life growing up was confusing because I had that going on. Um, my mom, you know, to this day, I don't know what she knows or knew about it. Um, but I, I felt my dad didn't really have to tell me to keep it a secret. I knew that that was something that was just between he and I that wasn't to be talked about. And so there were a lot of secrets in our house and a lot of um, just always an elephant in the room, but nobody wanted to address it. And um, so it was really confusing to me. My dad also, he had this tube of money. It was like a PVC pipe that he... Um, in our unfinished basement, he fished it down the wall 
And so, like, you couldn't see it unless you knew to look for it. There was a little hook. And then you would kind of pull it out of the wall. And it had cash in it, always a lot of cash. And my dad showed that to me, and he disclosed the location to me, and he made it, in my mind, the way I took it is that I was allowed to take those bills anytime I wanted anytime I wanted to. And, you know, I didn't see it then as what I see it now, which is that was kind of like a payment or quiet money, you know, to keep me quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but my mom knew that there was a tube of money, but my dad would not disclose the location to her. So there was always this tension between my mother and I because my dad was favoring me and not only in that way, but, um, and she didn't know anything about it. And she, and so there was like this tension between us. It wasn't a really, um, it it wasn't a solid relationship. Like I thought, like I convinced myself that it was my childhood is really, it's one way that I presented it to the world. And then it's the way that it really was. So it was kind of a double life. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, you had mentioned when you were about 15 is when the abuse stopped. Do you, do you have an understanding of why it stopped and kind of how did you feel about it at that time, that stopping? Mm-hmm. I um, At the time, I had no idea why it stopped. Looking back now, I can see that I was, you know, about to enter puberty and and in the um, community where I live, dating was allowed at 16 years old. And so that was coming up and I can see my father would have had some motivations that way to stop the abuse. But at the time, I felt like I had done something wrong because he just literally came to me one day and said, I think you're too old for this. Mm. And I was like, what do you mean I'm too old for this? This is how I know that you love me. This is how we show affection to each other. And this is our special thing, like he had told me for so many years. This right. was between us, and nobody else had this. This was so special. And so why is it coming to an end? Like, what did I do? Um, it's kind of weird because you would think, like, I would be celebrating it because I never liked it. Sure. I mean, I obviously never liked it. But I that's that's what I knew from my father, and so it was really confusing. What was dating like? when you did start dating after this season? Um, dating for me was really strange. So I did, I was really, I was always really shy and I was never going to be the one to approach a boy. Um, I never had anything in my head. Like some people say, I want to date a blonde. I want him to be tall. I want him to be on the football team. I never had any preconceived notions. I, it was just something that was going to happen in my life. Um, but I never thought that I had any control of it. So my friend, Sarah, um, when she started dating, she just naturally wanted me to be able to come along on the date. So she set me up with um, my first date ever. And he ended up, he was, I, it's, I feel weird like saying he was abusive too because people might look at me and think, oh, right, like every person she ran into was abusive. But somehow I had victims stamped on my forehead and like they knew who to pick, which they do. They know who to look for. Um, But that first boyfriend was, um, he slapped my friend uh, Sarah. He slapped her in the face one day and um, because she wanted to leave, um, and he didn't want to, and so he slapped her in the face, and he, he held me down several times and did things to me that I didn't want to, and so it was, it was just a continuation. I was like, okay, this is how boys act too. Right. And then, um, and then I was set up with Richard, who ended up being my husband, but he was dating him was very, just more of the same thing, and like he. He had all these weird tests that he would give me. Like, he had to check my body fat all the time. He wanted to, like, he had his hands would fit a certain way on my hips to make sure that I hadn't gained weight. And he would do these checks all the time. And dating him was just, I mean, I want to say it was a nightmare, but at the time, I, I didn't think of it that way so much. I didn't ever really like him it's just that I assumed I was to be with him it's such a weird mindset and so hard to explain but I didn't feel like I had 
options or even a say in the matter. If he wanted to date me, that was what was going to happen. And so that's how I started dating him. Yeah. And um, your friend Sarah, was she someone that you had known for a long time earlier in your life? Uh, Yeah, I met her, I think, in seventh grade. Yeah. And was she someone who had any idea about the abuse that was going on in your home? No, I made sure of that. Yeah. Um, And what was that experience like for you in keeping kind of that, as you mentioned, a double life, but having close a close friend and having these relationships, but then keeping that private? Yeah, it wasn't, it didn't seem all that strange to me. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have to work at it because I was so trained to keep that secret a secret right. that it was just, you know, that was just how it was. Like, yeah. I didn't talk about that. Um, I don't remember ever having a conversation with her about like, hey, what does your dad do to you? Or right. how are you with your dad? And I wish that I would have had one of those conversations, but I just never did. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't any different. It just, that was a secret and I didn't talk about it even to my closest friend. Yeah. And I think it, it would make perfect sense then that, you know, when you did start dating Richard and he was abusive in this way. And as you mentioned earlier, you just kind of thought that's how men were, right? And Mm -hmm. that if your closest friend isn't telling you, you know, this is not the way this should be or anything like that, like, of course, that's, that would be a reality. And that's, that's how you would perceive the situation. And so, of course, it's so devastating that you had to go through that. But it makes perfect sense that you would have felt that that was normalized in the way that it was for you. Mm -hmm. And so, um, obviously, you talked a little bit about dating with Richard, but at some point, that relationship also became physically intimate. And given kind of the history of of sexual abuse that you had had, can you explain if you're comfortable talking about what that experience was like and kind of becoming intimate in that way with Richard? Mm -hmm. So it was was really strange. Like I went into the relationship assuming that that would be part of it because that's just how it is with men. Right. And um, I didn't think that it would be any different, but he actually asked me if I wanted to have sex with him. And I remember being just really stunned and like, oh my gosh, he's asking, like, do I actually have a say in this? And it was a nice feeling that he asked. I didn't, I can't say I really felt like I had a choice. Sure. Because I still felt like my whole role in the relationship was to please him. Right. But, um, he, I mean, he played his cards well with that one. He really got me to feel like I had a little bit of a say in it. And, of course, uh, my answer was, whatever you want. Sure. Mm-hmm. And in your book, you talk a little bit about how having sex with Richard changed your perception a little bit about the experience you had had with your father. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, it just continued to normalize it, you know. Yeah. Um, it did and it didn't. This is really complicated. Like, I'm still in therapy for this reason, and I talk about this a lot in therapy. Like, how did I how did I know that something was wrong with what my dad was doing to me? And, and I got really angry as the years went by after he discontinued the abuse. Like, I started getting really angry about what he had done. But yet, Richard was doing the same thing. And it was just really depressing. Like, honestly, it was just super depressing that he wanted to do that same thing to me. Right. I didn't find any pleasure in it. I thought it it was like a chore, something that I had to do for him. And so it was really just disappointing. Yeah. Had you previously thought of what your, I know you had mentioned what your father had done, you knew it wasn't internally, you knew maybe it wasn't right. But had you previously thought of that as abuse until you were in this relationship with Richard? No, I wouldn't say I even thought of it as abuse then. Mm. Yeah, it took it took until I was in therapy so many years later for me to really see it as abuse. I saw it as something that my dad and I did together and that I still saw it as something special sure like special maybe not in a good way like but still something that was just between us that nobody else did and it had you know all these circumstances that led up to it that made it something that it wouldn't have happened to anybody else and yeah it was kind of twisted I I didn't really see it as abuse for a long time yeah and 
So in your relationship with Richard, at some point he was living at your home. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so he was about, I'm guessing 16, um, 16, 17, somewhere in there. When, uh, he, so he had a really bad living situation. He had, he had done some things uh, that he confessed to me that his mother had caught him doing with some neighbor girls, and she kicked him out of the house. And then he was kind of bouncing back and forth between his grandparents' home and, and an uncle that he really liked. And um, so he had a really tumultuous lifestyle. And his mother was really mad that uh, her family members were letting him stay with them because she wanted him to come groveling back. And so she told them, no more, you can't let him stay there anymore. So they essentially kicked him out. And he came to my door one night and he said that he was now living in his car, parked at a dead end near my house. And that was where he was living. And, you know, I didn't think it through for sure. I was young and my first reaction was, I've got to take care of him. And so I went into my parents and I said, this is completely unacceptable. His family's horrible. They've kicked him out. He has nowhere to live. Can he please come in? Like, it's really cold outside. Can he come in? And my parents both agreed to let him come in. It was mostly my dad that allowed it. And once he came in, he never left. So he was there. That was really... Um, really hard to have a boyfriend that I didn't really like, but I felt stuck with now living in my home. Of course. Because he knew all my comings and goings. He knew when I took a phone call and he had a controlling personality. And so it was like living on pins and needles. What was that like in terms of like your relationship with your other family members and them observing your relationship with Richard? Yeah, so he was pretty good about his abuses. He, well, he and I were both good at it. He mm. was pretty good to make sure that people didn't see that side of him. I was really good to make sure people didn't see that side of him. Yeah. So, you know, we were this great team of hiding. Um, my brother had returned from a church mis mission, and he was, he was, um, not happy that Richard was living in our home, but he was also not one that would make a confrontation or a scene about it. Um, I think he felt, you know, like he had been gone for two years and he came back and he didn't really have the say over the household what happened. Mm -hmm. um, so he just kind of put up with it and tolerated it. But um, my parents, my parents acted like Richard was just another one of their kids. Like on Christmas, you know, he got the same allotment of gifts and and they really just took him in as like another child. You mentioned in your book a little bit about pornography kind of playing a role in this relationship with Richard. Can you talk a little bit about kind of your perception of his pornography use at the time and also how it ended up impacting you? Yeah, so he he uh, he was really into computers. Like they, they were just getting really big, like the home use of computers. And so we had one. And um, he was always on it. And it wasn't long before, I mean, I don't know when, but I'm assuming right away he found the online world of pornography. And um, I, I was home one day and he was working. And I went down because he was living in the basement that was mm -hmm. half unfinished. And then it had like one bedroom that was finished. And then the computer room, we called it, you know, the office. Right. And he was living down there. So he was basically the only one on the computer because nobody else really had reason to be on it. Um, and I went down there one day and an image printed was sitting in the printer of this woman completely naked. And I, I was really triggered um, by that image of some things, you know, from my childhood and everything. I remember calling him at work on the phone and saying, what is this? And he was like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, like, what What are you freaking out about? I told him there's this picture that's printed out. And he's like, oh, it must have been, um, somebody must have sent it to me on auto print. 
And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. And I, so I was, I didn't take his answer. Like I drove to, I don't know what it was back then, but like an office depot kind of store. And I'm like, Hey, look at this. I took the whole computer. Yeah. I'm like, look at this computer. Is this something that could happen? And they just kind of laughed at me and they're like, no, <laughs> that's not, that's not something that happened. So that's when I realized that he was looking at pornography. Um, after that, it wasn't quite so much a secret. Like he would, he would be sure to close the screen if I walked in on him, but I still saw what he was looking right. at. So I knew he was doing it quite often. Um, as the years progressed, it just became common knowledge. This is what I do, and you have to put up with it. And um, he didn't make any excuses for it. That was just what he wanted to do, and so he did it. Your, how did your relationship progress, I guess, with him over time? Obviously, you were pretty young when he started living there, and then eventually this progressed into marriage. What did that journey kind of look like? There was no mystery to the fact that Richard and I would get married. It was just in the cards. You know, I didn't question it. I wondered. He he gave me a lot of uh, reason to wonder if it would happen. Like he said, I don't know if I'm going to marry you. I don't know if mm. I can spend my life with you. He was kind of mean about it. Like, I don't know if I can tolerate you for that long. And, and, um, but my family, I think saw it coming. They saw it as the next logical step. He had lived with us. My mom was really, really worried about what all the neighbors thought about him living with us. She actually tried to, um, she convinced my dad to kick him out at one point mm. and Richard uh, threatened suicide and ran away for like three, four days or something like that. And um, I, w- I was livid with my parents. I'm like, if he dies, this is on your hands. You know, how yeah. could you do that to him? It was a weird relationship where I was protective of him, but yet also being abused by him. And so super strange, but I guess that's how a lot of them are. Um, so yeah, it was just assumed that we would get married. Um, Richard always told me that that was the only way that I would become an honest woman, is what he said. He's like, someday maybe I'll make an honest woman of you because we had been having premarital sex, which in my community was really frowned upon. And I even had a church teacher at one point tell me that was worse than murder. So my perspective of it was that I was doing something so terribly wrong that yet I didn't have the right to say no to. So I was just trapped in you know being this bad person so when Richard proposed it it gave me this sense of I can make right all of this bad that I've been doing right and he told me he's like if we get married then you won't you won't have you won't be living in sin anymore you'll be it'll be like wiped clean and you'll be fine and so that's kind of the perspective I had going into it yeah did you have any preconceived notions about how marriage could maybe fix your relationship or any of the parts of your relationship that, you know, you knew were abusive by this point or were difficult or challenging, but kind of thinking, oh, but marriage could wipe the slate clean, you know, across the board? Oh, yeah, I totally thought that. I thought once I thought once I was his wife, number one, I thought pornography would go completely away because yeah. I'm like, he has a wife. There'd be no place for that in a relationship. I thought that his bad behavior, his mean behavior, the physicality that he had with me, I thought all of that would go away. The tests I thought would go away. I, oh, I was so stupid looking back, but I just, I thought everything would change. I thought he'd be I, I don't know that I was so disillusioned that I thought he'd become like an angelic or, you know, the sure. perfect spouse, but I thought he'd be better for yeah. sure. And that just didn't happen. Yeah. If you feel comfortable sharing and you talk about this in your book, can you describe what happened the night he proposed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, uh, we had planned a trip to Seattle. We were kind of in love with like the whole grunge music scene and Seattle was kind of the place where that was happening. And so that, that was really the only reason we picked Seattle, but we decided to take a trip. I thought it was just a trip. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to remember if I had any inclination. I didn't really think that he was going to propose, but so I was pretty surprised by that. But, um, we told my parents we were going to Seattle for the day and that we'd be back that same night. Um, we went to Seattle, we had dinner in the Space Needle, and he proposed, and it was kind of, 
it was sad to think about now when he, when he set the ring in front of me and was kind of like, well, here it is, you know, take it or leave it. I like jumped on the other side of the table and gave him hugs and kisses sure. and I was so excited and he's like, stop it, stop it, you're making a scene and he was just embarrassed by the whole thing. So we went home or went to the hotel that night, um, called my parents, told them we had missed the flight and that we'd be spending the night in the airport and be home the next morning, which obviously wasn't true. Um, and Richard said, you know, I have a gift for you. And I'm like, really? That's so out of character for him to do anything like romantic right. or anything. So um, he pulls out this gift and I unwrap it. And it's like this, it's just nasty. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It was like a leather harness kind of body harness type thing. And um, he's like, I want you to put this on. And oh, by the way, I got a Polaroid camera so I can take pictures of you in it. And I was like, really, that's that's what you want to do the night that we got engaged? No, I was really, really hurt by it and let down. Yeah. And But again, I my job was to please him, and at least that's what I thought. Sure. And I told myself that this was just how it was going to be. So I rolled with the punches like always, put the thing on, and had let him take the photos. I felt really degraded and just bad about myself and worried I remember being really scared like what's he going to do with these photos yeah. where are they going to end up um he would never tell me I still don't know what happened to them um but yeah that's yeah but it was something that you know he then had that power over you as well right mm -hmm. of having those images that you never knew yeah where they might go or where they did go yeah I didn't really mention that but that was a big part of our relationship was that he said you know if I ever left him or misbehaved or something like that that he would tell my parents that we had been having sex since we were 16 yeah and I thought my parents would disown me for sure I thought the community would disown me so yeah when he had photos I mean that was a really big stick to wield over yeah. me and how old were you when you got engaged um I gosh that's a good question I was either I think I was 18 by then yeah but yeah. still so young. So young, yeah. yeah. I didn't want to be with Richard. I wasn't happy with him. He he definitely didn't fulfill my needs. He didn't care about my needs. It was all about him. And yet I wanted to marry him. So um, it's really hard to describe, but I wanted to marry him because I wanted to be a good girl. Right. I wanted all the bad stuff to go away, and I wanted to make it all okay. So I saw the only way of doing that is marrying Richard. So I didn't really want to be with him, but I also wanted to marry him, if that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And can you talk a little bit about or describe what your marriage was like with Richard and what, you know, kind of that controlling and overbearing nature that he had as you were dating, what that kind of progressed into in your marriage? Yeah, so he, he didn't stop with all the things that I hoped would stop with marriage did not stop. Yeah. Um, just like everybody always says, when you hear somebody in a bad relationship, it doesn't fix anything. Yeah. It just got worse. He uh, felt like he had more control over me. I was now his property. That's really how he saw it. He told me that. Like yeah. he would say, you know, you're my wife. You're mine. Um, I own you now. And that's how it felt. Um, he dictated who I spent time with. Uh, he did it in subtle ways. Like I had a cousin that I liked to spend time with and we would go and be together and then come back and he'd be like, did you guys kiss? Did you get naked? Did you like have a panty party with pillows and just all these nasty questions? And I'm like, no, of course not. But the interrogations would be so brutal and so disturbing that after time, you know, it was just easier to not be with her, yeah. just to not spend time with her. So in those ways, he controlled a lot of who I spent my time with just because his interrogations were awful and yeah. that, you know, dissuade me from going out with friends and stuff. He also was just really possessive. It was, he would always say, it's, it's you and I, you know, like versus the world. We're together. Something that wasn't uncommon kind of from my dad. Um, so it was just kind of more of the same. Yeah. And, um, he, he didn't stop with the tests. He had 
oh gosh, he had all these tests. He even had like literal paper tests that he had me fill out. Like for Christmases, I had to fill out a budget test. I had to say how I was going to spend every dollar. He always made sure it was in his favor. You know, like he'd sure. say, oh, I just got a bonus. Add that to my portion. Um, and at Christmases, I really... I had to wow him. Like, it was really important that I be really thoughtful and get him gifts that he would be really excited about. And it was all about him, even when we had kids. And um, he had a test for me to drive a Corvette that he purchased. Um, Kind of both of our dream car, but mostly his. Um, I like cars too, but uh, he had always been in love with a Corvette, and so somehow he made it happen. It was kind of a long story, but he made it happen that we could afford it. I'm not sure we could afford it, but sure. we got it regardless. Um, he made me fill out an application to drive that vehicle, and he failed me. Um, and then he made me fill out a separate application to ride in that vehicle, to be a passenger in his oh. car. And that one I passed, but he rarely to never took me out in it. It was his car, and he always said he'd like to drive it alone because he got looks from the ladies, you know, like that was his pickup line or whatever. So, yeah, it, it was just it was just more of the same. It didn't stop any of the issues that we had. They just escalated. His pornography consumption continued as mm-hmm. well. Can you speak to how that impacted your marriage? Yeah, I mean, it was it was something that I knew he did, and I hated it. I yeah. always hated it. Um, he got more bold with it. Once we were married, it was kind of like, well, what are you going to do? You know, like, right. you're not going to leave me now. And um, so he would stop closing the screen, and he would just let it play. And I would see it, and I'd be like, Richard, don't watch that. Please don't watch that. That's horrible. And he's like, you know, shut up. Like, this is what I want to do, and I like it. Can you share about your decision to have kids with him? And you mentioned some conditions that he had around that as well, what that kind of whole experience was like. So an, another kind of stupid moment where I thought, so I wasn't I wasn't so naive that I thought kids would fix Richard. Sure. But I felt like I was kind of in, I think I say it this way in the book, that I was in a prison cell and the only way I was going to have any friends was to give birth to them. Yeah. And that's kind of how I saw it is like, if I want other people in my life, if I want close relationships, they're going to be with my kids. Like I'm going to have to have kids to have those kind of relationships. Yeah. I was super lonely in the marriage, like so lonely. He spent all of his time on the computer watching porn or, and he was going to school. So he had some legit reasons too, but, um, but it was just a very, very lonely marriage. And so I started asking him if we could have kids, and he told me that we would need to wait a certain amount of years. And so I waited those years, and I just worked, and he worked. And um, then as the time got nearer, I kept asking him, you know, I really want to have a baby. I'd always wanted to be a mom, so that was not a question for me. I'd never, like, sat down and considered, do I want kids, don't I want kids? It was just a a known thing, like, that was going to happen. Um, But Richard made it difficult. He was like, I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if you're the type of mother that I want for my kids. And, And so he eventually made me fill out test again like with the Corvette like he made me fill out a actual written test an application to have kids with him and surprisingly he passed me on it and um, when my first Riker my oldest was born uh, it just it just everything just got worse like it just made everything worse because now he had him to use against me right and it was always keep your kid quiet. They were my, it was my kid, not ours. Right. It was keep your kid quiet and keep him out of my way and don't let him disrupt me on my computer. And um, he part of the application, he made me sign that I would breastfeed. And then once I started doing it, he was like, those are mine. Those belong to me. Like, don't share those with him. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? You want me, you're insisting that I breastfeed, but then he's having this whole issue with it. Right. So eventually I 
I went to a bottle and he ended up begrudgingly paying for the formula. Sure. But that was the only way that I could fix that problem. So um, as the other kids came along, um, it was just, it just continued to be more difficult. He used the kids against me. Um, it was always shut them up. Don't let them bother me. Um, when I had my daughter, Kaylee, she, uh, he said that he couldn't be in the room when I was changing her diaper because he was too worried of the thoughts that he would have and the feelings he would have seeing her naked. And I was just horrified by yeah. that. Like that, like, what do you mean you're going to yeah. have thoughts? And so obviously I just didn't take a chance and just took care of her on my own. But I was, I was essentially a single mother with this domineering partner. What was your mental state like at, you know, this point in your relationship after having some kids did you talk to anyone or were you able to seek help? And if so, what kind of conditions were there around that for you? I became, so I think I had some postpartum going on, but it sure. wasn't diagnosed at the time. Um, and that's partly because I didn't see anybody who would diagnose me. Sure. But um, I, my mental health really declined after, I mean, really after the first birth, but after my third child. I really went downhill. I was I was now living this trapped life where I was still subservient to Richard and he was being more aggressive about like I say he raped me. He of course would be like, "No, you are my wife. I could do what I want with you." But um he was doing things like that and being even more controlling with the finances. Like I couldn't know how much money we had. He gave yeah. me ten dollars a week to spend as my allowance like you can't even buy a, a meal yeah. for ten dollars like barely not let alone for the three kids yeah um and so yeah my mental health was really suffering I felt trapped and suffocated and he now he had now it wasn't just the leverage of oh I'll tell everybody that we had premarital sex and you'll be you know viewed different in the community sure. and by your parents will hate you and everything but now it was I'll take the kids like you won't get custody of the kids you'll never see them again I'll make right. sure that I get them and as my mental health declined like there was more evidence for him to use because sure. yeah because I went into therapy so now I have a history of being in therapy I had um I actually had a suicide attempt I had several times when I felt that I was really suicidal and had to go into the hospital. And so now he had all this evidence against me where he, he claimed it would be really easy to prove that I was unfit to be a mother. Sure. And I believed him. Sure. I didn't know what else to believe. And it seemed like he had a pretty good case to me. You know, I, I felt like I hadn't done myself any favors by going into the psych ward three, four times. Um, and I know differently now, but at the time yeah. I just didn't know any difference. So my mental health got really bad. He let me see a therapist after I did a lot of begging, you know, yeah. please let me go to therapy. It was the only thing I could think of that would help. Nobody in my family had ever been to therapy, so I didn't know anything sure. about it. But it was the only thing I could think of. And he said, you can absolutely, you can go to therapy, I'll let you go, but you can't you absolutely cannot talk about me or anything that goes on in our home so basically I couldn't talk about anything sure. that was bothering me so as long as I did that I could go to therapy so I went to therapy and it didn't work yeah <laughs> I mean it just it couldn't work when I wasn't yeah. being honest um you had mentioned your suicide attempt you talk about this in your book as well what did Richard do in your house after your suicide attempt Oh man, he, um, so I had, yeah, I had had suicidal thoughts previously and I had addressed them. I had been in the hospital for them and then I had this real attempt, um, and he was so furious with me. He gave me an ultimatum saying that I was going to have to be healthy and I couldn't bring any more attention negative attention to him because he felt like it was making people question what was going on with me that I was so upset sure. and um you know in the psych ward they 
put you when you're suicidal they put you in a room that's it's not padded or anything sure. but um it's a it's a blank room you don't get sheets or anything that you could harm yourself with right. they're very careful and there's a camera that watches you all the time and it's kind of dehumanizing but i understand why they do it sure um but he kind of wanted to do that himself so he would in our bathroom our master bathroom he would tear out like he took down the shower curtain the shower curtain rings the towels razor with um shampoo bottles like yeah. every little thing in the bathroom he tore out of there until it was just an empty blank space and um then he locked me in it and he's like go ahead and hurt yourself now like i dare you go ahead and hurt yourself and i'd be locked in this bathroom for hours and there was a little window and i remember thinking i'm gonna jump out the window like i i can't be locked in here i was sure going crazy and the window was just too small i couldn't fit and so yeah i'd be locked in there for hours and hours at a time and i just bang on the door and he just would not let me out and then in our bedroom our master bedroom he changed the locks on the doors so that they were key locks from the inside and um he would lock me in the bedroom and sometimes he would get the kids and he'd bring them into the area right outside the bedroom door and he'd spank them and they'd be crying mommy mommy stop help and crying for me and I'm like yeah. at the door I'm here I'm here you guys it's okay it's gonna be okay and he's giving them harsh treatment just to make them cry and just to torture us I yeah. mean it was just for torture but he wore the key to the bedroom and to the bathroom on a necklace around his neck so that I had to always wake him up or go get him anytime I wanted to use the restroom um, he tied me to him at night leg to leg so that I couldn't get up and leave the bed without him knowing. I mean, I couldn't even roll over. Sure. And and it was my responsibility to make sure he got a good night's sleep. So, like, if he rolled over, I had to adjust my legs sure. so that he had enough slack in the rope that he could be comfortable. And eventually it got so bad where he didn't even let me sleep in the bed. He made me sleep on the floor, no blankets, no pillows, just on the hard floor next to the bed. He said I didn't deserve to sleep in a bed with him. So he turned my house into a prison. Yeah. And were there cameras involved in that as yes. well? Yes. Yes. So I've never, I never saw them, but he told me he had cameras installed in the house. Um, there was one time I was just feeling spunky, which was rare because I usually followed what he said to a T. And I like flipped the bird, you know, to in the house and like turned a circle and the phone rang instantly and it was him and he's like what did you just do and I was like nothing and he's like I know what you just did I can see you and so that proved to me that he yeah. did have cameras in the home yeah I think he still has them actually wow. I think he still has them in the home my my kids when they go over there they tell me that there's still cameras yeah First of all, I'm so sorry you had to experience all of this. And I think anyone listening to this can see your incredible strength in being able to share this story and help bring awareness to what these situations are like. But I do want to kind of lean into the fact that you, you were able to end this marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious to know um, if you're as much as you're comfortable sharing, you know, how did you leave Richard in the end? What was that experience like because I know there are some difficult pieces of that as well yeah so I I didn't really consider divorce because partly because in the contract to have children he sure. made me sign my name saying that I would never ever divorce him under any circumstance now I didn't really I didn't think oh gosh I signed that like I can never do it but it kind of had some weight sure. on me um, because I had promised to never do that. So I didn't think about it often. I didn't like, um, daydream about it too much yeah. until it got nearer to the end. Um, I caught him cheating. He, uh, I, he had probably been cheating for years. Sure. I had suspected it, but this time I found an email. So I had proof yeah. that he had written to her and, um, I, my dad actually helped me. He had a contact from the military who was a private investigator. And so he helped me hire him. 
and we were hoping to get pictures of him having an affair. I was a little, I was a lot naive back then. I thought, oh, if the judge sees that he's having an affair, like on his wife and kids, um, I'll for sure get custody. Like that will look really bad. I don't know what weight, honestly, that would even play in a courtroom today, but um, but that was my thinking back then. And yeah. so we hired this private investigator, and uh, he went to take pictures. I guess I guess he got the pictures. Um, he said he had pictures of them kissing on her doorstep and in his car at work. Um, but I never actually got the pictures because of what happened later that would end the marriage. Um, I, I can't say that I was so brave that I just walked out one day that didn't happen I wasn't I didn't have the mental resources for that although I would have liked to I I did try to leave on a couple of occasions it's stupid like I I, sounds ridiculous looking back at it like why did I think that I had to leave in the middle of the night but for some reason at the time that's what I thought I had to do and so I went and woke up the kids and had their bags packed and I tried to leave in the night but he caught us both times and so I gave up on that so then that's kind of where my suicide attempts come in because I didn't think that I could ever leave him and so that was the only way out but um he actually One night, I was really sick, and I was laying on the couch, and he came in, and he used some expletives, and he's like, what's the matter with you? I said, I just don't feel well, and he's like, well, it better not be a mental illness this time. It better be a physical one, and I was like, it is, it is. I'm going to go to bed, and I went to bed first, and then he came to bed after, and all of a sudden, like, what I didn't prompt, like, I did nothing to bring this on. He just all of a sudden randomly just kicked me as hard as he could in my shin with his foot I think with his heel and I was like I instantly sat up and I said what was that for and he said I just hate you I hate you so much and I remember laying next to him that night and looking at the back of his head and just thinking well I did have thoughts of this man's gonna kill me and it's going to look like I committed suicide yeah and he's he's going to get rid of me in that way Um, So I did have some of those thoughts going on, whether they were rational or not. I don't know. But um, I didn't, I still didn't have any intentions of, like, going to the police. I did, it's kind of weird. I had a doctor appointment two days later. And it was like, it was like subtly I was hoping that they would see the injury. But I also didn't want to be the one that said, hey, look, look what he did. So I wore a skirt. I was like my middle ground. I'll wear a skirt if they see it. I I didn't even think it through. I I didn't even think, well, if they see it, what will happen? I was just like in survival mode. So I wore this skirt and went to the doctor appointment. And sure enough, he saw the bruise. And he's like, "Um, what happened to you? Where, Where did you get that nasty bruise? Like, what's going on? And I started crying. And he was a doctor I had never seen before. He was just the on-call doctor because yeah. my regular doctor was out. And he's like, um, if you don't go to the police and report this, I will. So one of us is going today. He said, if you go, they'll probably just document it and nothing will come from it. And I was like, okay, under those circumstances, I agreed to go. Sure went to the police station and of course once they saw it they said they were opening a case against him and that they were going to arrest him and that was the last so that morning was the last time that I saw him outside of a courtroom yeah I just want to say you had said it wasn't brave or you to walk away I think it's very brave that you um, endured what you endured and were able to have the courage to go to the police station and then pursue what came after that in kind of the legal um, process. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Consider Before Consuming is brought to you by Fight the New Drug. Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and a non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest and the conversation we had, 
you can check out the links included with this episode. If you find this podcast helpful, consider subscribing and leaving a review. Consider Before Consuming is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to support Consider Before Consuming, you can make a one-time or recurring donation of any amount at ftnd.org forward slash support. That's ftnd.org forward slash support. Thanks again for listening. We hope you join us for part two of Julie's story on the next episode of Consider Before Consuming. Some people don't realize that sex trafficking shares a variety of symbiotic connections to pornography. There are all kinds of connections between pornography, sexual exploitation, and sex trafficking. Often they're one and the same. Even in the production of mainstream porn, sex trafficking can still occur, and it happens more often than most people think. In fact, according to the International Labor Organization, an estimated 6.3 million people are in situations of forced commercial sexual exploitation, legally defined as sex trafficking, at any point in time. Even more disturbingly, more than one in five sex trafficking victims are children. These can be discouraging statistics to hear, but we all have the power to decrease the demand for sex trafficking by raising awareness of its connections to pornography. You can learn more about how sex trafficking is connected to pornography and what you can do to help decrease the demand for it at ftnd.org forward slash trafficking. That's ftnd.org forward slash trafficking. Deciding to quit porn in the new year? Get help from our friends at Fortify. Meet Fortify, an online recovery program that has helped tens of thousands of individuals around the world stop their porn habit in its tracks. Fortify's free, science-based recovery platform is dedicated to helping you find lasting freedom from pornography. You can connect with others, learn how to better understand your compulsive behavior, and track your recovery journey. Make this the year you quit porn for good. Join Fortify for free today at ftnd.org forward slash fortify. That's ftnd.org forward slash fortify. You're not alone. Recovery is possible. Quit porn for good with Fortify. Buy the new drug is an affiliate of Fortify and may receive financial support from purchases made using affiliate links.